0: The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Rios, do not even think about going there. Hey everybody, this is your host Peter with the 29th Digest of this second volume, covering Monday, January 16th through Friday, January 20th, 2023. Marvel Saga Monday Part 15, taking a look at the 15th issue of the official history of the Marvel Universe. Peter Sanderson is your writer and researcher, cover by Keith Pollard and Al Williamson, featuring, on the front cover, Hawkeye and Wonder Wonder Man. And the blurbs are, Inside the origins of the Avengers, Hawkeye and Wonder Man, And we see them surrounded by a number of different little vignettes of their origins. Uh, Plus, the X-Men, the Blob, Spider-Man's first battle with Daredevil, the origins of Kang the Conqueror, and the Scorpion. And on the back cover, we see Spider-Man and Daredevil as the Ringmaster looks on. Reimagined from the Ditko cover to Amazing Spider-Man number 16, which will be reprinted inside the saga as well as the Avengers battling Kang, which is just an update of the Kirby Airs cover to Avengers number 8. And then the last blurb, the Fantas- plus the Fantastic Four, Dr. Doom, Diablo, the Enchantress, the Executioner, the Swordman, the Swordsman, the Green Goblin, and much more. And we see Reed Richards and Doom engaging in a battle of wills, which we'll talk about later on in the saga. Stories are pulled in this issue from Amazing Spider-Man 16 through 20 plus Annual 1, Avengers 8, 9, 19, and 65, Fantastic Four 30, and Annual 2, Tales of Suspense 57, and X-Men 7, putting us uh, in publishing continuity around mid-1964 and a little bit beyond. So Marvel Saga Fifteen, Book Fifteen, entitled Avengers Abornin', which is kind of self-explanatory. On the splash page, this is a uh, a new splash page, new artwork by Keith Pollard, based on the Jack Kirby Chickstone art in Fantastic Four, Number Thirty, and then pages two through five continue the Fantastic Four's first encounter with Diablo, which we ended the previous issue with. And you have, uh, basically, Diablo making promises that he can't keep to get Ben Grimm, the thing, on his side. And then Diablo starts amassing a huge fortune by promising immortality to the wealthy, and yet boasting to the Fantastic Four that he can turn lead to gold. So you're sort of like, okay, what do you need all this money for? He eventually gets trapped back into the crypt where he was originally freed by the Thing. And the saga states that he will be back. And next time around, he'll be uh, bringing the Dragon Man with him. Now, ultimately, as much as I like Diablo as a villain, I thought five pages for this one story seemed a bit much, but okay. I, I don't know. Is Diablo that much of a major Fantastic Four? villain that he gets that much it's not a lot and I guess maybe some of it has to do with dealing with the the thing turning against his uh family you know but I don't know I just thought five pages was a lot for just one particular story pages six through 13 we get a lengthy sequence a, a rightfully lengthy sequence to give us the origin of Hawkeye I like that the saga is doing this in advance of his eventual membership as an Avenger to show that this event was happening, you know, obviously prior to Avenger 16. His first appearance was as part of like a carnival attraction on Coney Island. And then he gets upstaged by Iron Man and decides to become a costume adventurer himself. Um, He is called Hawkeye at the attraction, at the carnival. So part of me thought, oh, you know, I guess he doesn't really have that much of a secret identity. Um, His origin with his... We get the rest of the origin with his brother, learning his skills from the swordsman. Uh, Again, this is all as of 1987, right? He meets the Black Widow, he confronts Iron Man, he starts a love affair with the Black Widow, and the saga says that he'll be back eventually. Uh, It's a nice feature. It's a nice feature for what is building up to be the start of a secondary set of major characters within the Marvel Universe. Uh, you know, I think if you throw in Pietro, you know, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, and now you got Hawkeye and Wonder Man, they're obviously building up uh, the back half of the Marvel Saga to Avengers 16 and beyond. Pages 14 through 16, we get the first meeting of Spider-Man and Daredevil as they go up against the Ringmaster and the Circus of Crime, who got his fair share of appearances in the saga so far. Uh, Daredevil was only up to issue three the same month that he meets Spider-Man in Amazing Spider-Man 16, so clearly Stan Stanley wants to, you know, cross-promote and push that title. Um, nothing really stood out to me in this sequence, but the saga starts to point out that Aunt May is bugging Peter to meet a, f- a niece of her friend, uh, and that niece is named Mary Jane. Page 17, we get two small vignettes from X-Men 7 with The Blob and Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1 with The Secret 6, first made up with the team of Mysterio, Craven, Vulture, Dr. Octopus, Sandman, and Electro, which all seems like a very good trivia question to know. Pages 18 through 21, uh, surprisingly only four pages to cover the first appearance of Kang from Avengers number 8, although we have seen him previously when the saga talked about Rama-Tut and the Fantastic Four and they threw in some origin bits with Ramatut, Scarlet Centurion, Kang, Immortus, and, and we're just picking it up here as well. The saga starts off by saying this about Kang. This is the man who may well be the greatest of the Avengers recurring nemeses, which again, I thought, yeah, I guess that's true, right? I mean, I haven't read much of a, you know, the Avengers title beyond some Issues in in the 1980s, and of course with the Busiek and Paras run, and they had a lengthy Kang storyline in that, obviously, Avengers Forever. But before the 80s, who, you know, was Kang the big bad? I guess, right? I'm, I'm assuming the saga is correct in that um, so is it supposition. Again, not much to this first meeting for me, outside of a comment by Wasp. I'll bet he's not bad-looking under that silly headgear he's wearing. So we'll have to see if that line of dialogue makes it into Quantum Mania. Um, as I said, we touched on his origins before. I thought we would get a bit more, but maybe by maybe by 1987 we haven't laid out all of Kang's va- various timelines yet for the saga to go really deep. But you know, we'll see. We'll see what the remaining issues have to say. Pages 22 through 26, we are in the Spider-Man corner of the Marvel Universe. Spider-Man and Human Torch go up against Green Goblin. And then we get the first appearance of Ned Leeds. We get Peter Parker getting cozy with Liz Allen, while the space between Peter and Betty Brant starts to grow bigger and bigger. We get the creation of the new Scorpion, a monster created by J. Jonah Jameson to defeat Spider-Man. So, of course, that comes back to bite Jonah in the butt, because... Um, At the end of this first clash, Spider-Man has to save Jonah from his own creation, and then the saga states that one day Jonah will confess that he created the Scorpion and then resign as the Daily Bugle editor-in-chief, and that all happened, I believe, in the 80s because it was Hobgoblin who was threatening Jonah with that information. Pages 28 through 30 from the pages of Fantastic Four Annual 2, we get another matchup between the Fantastic Four and Doctor Doom, this time taking place within the first appearance of Latveria. Now, we visited Latveria um, and visited information from this annual previously in the saga when they were, you know, dipping into all of Doom's origin stuff. But in publishing continuity... Uh, Fantastic Four Annual 2 is the annual that gives Doom his home. And just like on the back cover, Reed and Doom decide to have a battle of wills using a device called the Encephalo Gun. And the winner with the strongest will will send the other one to limbo. So Reed manages to drink, uh, trick Doom into thinking that he's, that Doom has won, but the saga states definitively here... Richards has clearly proved which of the two has the stronger will. Wow. Pages 27 through, and pages 27, 30 through 32, we wrap up the issue back at the Avengers with the masters of evil and the origin and creation of the new wonder man. This is the first appearance of Simon Williams. His origin doesn't need as many pages as, as Hawkeye. You know, it's not, ...that terribly complex. Uh, He was basically created and roped in by the Enchantress and Zemo... ...and given power so that he could stand toe-to-toe with each member of the Avengers. And uh, the way Zemo gets him to fight for him... ...is by telling him that, oh, all that ionic energy running through you... ...it's going to kill you unless I give you weekly injections... So, he's basically being blackmailed. This is where the saga ends for this issue. And on the inside back cover, they show a few random covers of some of the comics that they feature in the saga. So, they have the cover to Avengers 9, where it says, Marvel proudly introduces Wonder Man, the newest, most dynamic surprise character from the world-famous House of Ideas. And I'm sure DC looked at that and went, hmm, excuse me? (laughs) And there you go. That's it. That is the end of Marvel Saga 15. We we will be back in two digests for Marvel Saga 16. Trailer Tuesday. I'm surprised I'm doing another one of these segments so soon, but I had to because there was a trailer that is uh, teased by that music that threw me completely off guard, and I thought, oh my god, I gotta talk about that, so I gotta find other things to talk about as well. So just a handful of trailer reactions here, starting with Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, which we've had some trailers before, I think. Uh, This is the one that, uh, you know, dropped recently, um, giving us our best look yet at this movie that is coming out February 17th. Um, It's epic. It really is epic, I have to say. Watching this trailer, I was like, wow. I just hope it stays epic, right? Like, I hope when we watch the movie that it doesn't... I know it's going to be... it's going to have comedic elements because it's an Ant-Man movie, Um, but I don't want them to go to the quantum worlds and the locations and meet all these new various strange alien beings, and then all of a sudden all of the aliens are kind of like goofy the way they do in Guardians of the Galaxy, right? Like, I don't want Guardians of the Galaxy in the quantum verse, in the microverse. Like, I, I hope there's some differences there. Um, I want the aliens to be bizarre, and I want culture shock, and clearly we want to see the rise of Kang's empire, the rise of his destiny, but I don't want it on the backs of everybody being dumb, you know, I'm done with that. Um, There could be a lot of connections here, I think this movie is um, right up there with something like, say, Captain America Civil War, where it's... It's basically this... Uh, I mean, Captain America Civil War was basically Avengers, what, 2.5 or something like that? I don't expect to, expect this to be an Avengers movie, but certainly in a narrative sense, it's going to kick off a lot. Um, it I assume it's going to have ties with Eternals and Shang-Chi and Ms. Marvel. You know, let's just bring it all in. One of the things I really liked messing with both the Ant-Man thing and... You know, with the quantum universe, all of these visuals of Ant Man separating himself, and then it looks like at the one point that he is standing on top of a pile of ants, which is something we've, you know, we've been seeing him do, especially in the first movie. But they're not ants, they are Ant Mans, which totally makes sense if you're in a quantum realm, right? Um, That's what I want to see. I want to see all these possibilities. His powers manifesting in odd ways. Just like Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness, right? Like when they were zooming through all the different multiverses. Show us what this quantum universe can do. How it's going to mean something for the later movies. And bring in all these comic book visuals that, that you can elevate because it is a movie. Right? Don't be limited. And then of course, you know... Mother Bleeping Kang, Jonathan Majors, man, you know, I keep coming back to Lovecraft Country and how good that show was and how it made me really appreciate that actors like Journey Smollett and Jonathan Majors, that they can act because that show had a range of emotions and all these odd situations, sometimes real world, sometimes fantasy. You know, they were put through so much, sometimes horror, and um, as I was watching them and what they had to go through, both acting-wise, physical-wise, emotionality-wise, I just kept thinking, man, these are actors, right? I mean, I know a lot of people are going to discover Jonathan Majors because of uh, Quantumania. I'm just glad that I got to see him do some stuff prior to this um because then i know what he can do you know and not to mention he's going to be in creed 3 which is another franchise i really love so uh yeah i'm i'm really glad that he is finding um some some major attention so that people can go watch his other stuff which is so worth it so worth it so great scenes with kang in there looking forward to it hope they you know i know they're going to find a way to make him different from thanos uh and it should be fun Uh, One of the surprises that as I was researching trailers, or actually just kind of dropped on Twitter one day, is uh, History of the World Part 2 by Mel Brooks, 96 years old and still creating. He is definitely the GOAT, right? Uh, This is the long-awaited sequel to the 1981 movie, History of the World Part 1, which had classic scenes like the Inquisition song... Lines like, it's good to be king, it's good to be the king, uh, he, he played Comicus the stand-up philosopher, which was really funny, Madeline Kahn as Empress Nympho, uh, Gregory Hines, The Mighty Joint, yeah, this was such a fun movie, even though it was messy and silly, um, it was also Gregory Hines's film debut, which I didn't know, And then part two is going to focus on, you know, people like Noah and Jesus and Rasputin, Marco Polo, Harriet Tubman. Um, This drops on Hulu on March 6th for four nights. And if you remember part one, it did have a trailer at the end for part two. And it showed Hitler on ice. It showed a Viking funeral. And it showed Jews in space, which was like a Star Wars riff. And I, when you look at like some of the scenes in this trailer, you realize, yeah, it looks like they're definitely going to hit the Jews in space. So, um, complete surprise, complete shock to everybody. Is it going to be great? I don't know, but I'm going to watch it because I, I adore Mel Brooks. We also got, um, a trailer for Judy Bloom's Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, produced by James L. Brooks, coming April 28th. Um, I'm sure this, for people my age, you know, I'm sure this is going to be a movie that uh, a lot of women are going to watch. Um, I'm going to watch it because, you know, I was a fan of of the Fudge series from Judy Bloom, um, Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing, which was written in 1972. Uh, and then the one sequel that I did read, Super Fudge, at the time. I had those books. I, I read them to shreds. The lead character is Peter, right? His name was Peter, and then he has a younger brother named Fudge. And I didn't realize there were all these other sequels, and then uh, I got as a gift one time the entire Fudge uh, book series, which is about five books, I guess, if I'm looking on my shelf there. I still haven't read them. It's still unopened. But I should really do that because I did adore that part. So here we go. We got Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And it looks to be, you know, nothing too deep. But finally getting uh, that franchise or that um, one of her stories on the big screen. And then finally, the big surprise. The big surprise, as you heard from that intro music, maybe. um, I had no idea this was even a thing, which is part of the reason why I'm so glad I don't scour the internet for news stories and, um, you know, I don't want to know what's coming down the road a year from now because this just dropped the trailer for Greece, Rise of the Pink Ladies. Wow. As soon as I saw it and heard that classic music, I was like, okay, this is what a trailer is supposed to do. It's supposed to surprise you. It's supposed to, you know, Take take your breath away and, and just, you know, rope you in. And as I was watching it, I was like, oh my god, I this looks to be like so much fun. I'm on record as saying, you know, I am not a fan of Grease 2. <laughs> I'm not. I just think the dancing is not as good. The music is not as good. The acting, I mean, look, it's Grease. It's Grease, right? The acting is not supposed to be good. If you know the original play that the Grease movie is based on, You know that the original play was dirtier, it was messier, um, you know, they added songs for the movie. Uh, Danny as a character in the original play is more like Kanicki in the movie, and vice versa and it was a play that they they are meant to be played by adults right if you see grease and it's played by high schoolers or or teenagers no they're they're getting they're getting it wrong which is why in the movie they kept that same f- uh, flavor so when it came time for the sequel grease 2 i was like no this is this isn't cutting it at all i think partly because they were um, not telling the same joke if you will quote unquote But with Rise of the Pink Ladies, I don't know why, just something about this, you know, because it's um, taking place four years before the movie, and it's, as it says, the Rise of the Pink Ladies group, and the only character so far that is from the movie is Principal McGee. She is an assistant principal at the time, and she's being played by Jackie Hoffman, who uh, is an actress, a Broadway actress, and, and that's a pretty good choice. But just everything, you know, the movie, the lettermans I mean, the music, the letterman sweaters, the cars, the clothes, the t-birds, the dancing looks great. You can see that it's inspired by the original uh, Patricia Birch from the movie, her choreography, which is just amazing. And it's going to be the story about the original girl gang, you know, and uh All the actresses are relatively new. I'm I'm already particularly fond of Cheyenne Isabel Wells as Olivia, who's, uh, I believe, a Puerto Rican actress. Um, I don't know if they're planning on doing more than one season. Um, But if they do, I have to imagine, since it does take place four years before the movie, that by the end we're going to see references, or maybe even, maybe we'll see new actresses, in the roles of the uh pink ladies from the movie you know rizzo Frenchie, jan marty that could be fun Um, greece was such a huge part of my childhood i probably talked about it when uh when olivia newton john passed one of my mom's um boyfriends ex-boyfriends used to have a car in our backyard And we would totally play Grease Lightning on it. Because it it had a similar kind of feel. And it was just awesome being able to jump around on this car. So this is going to stream on on, um, Paramount on April 6th. And uh, as I was doing a little research, I found out that there's also another prequel to Grease. It's going to be a movie, I think, um, entitled Summer Lovin'. I don't know if that has any traction, but... Um, kind of crazy that we're getting, you know, all this grease material. So I'm I'm all for it. I'm really looking forward to Rise of the Pink Ladies. I think it's going to be just a hoot. So there you go. Just a few thoughts about a few trailers. Finally, after years of work, my ultimate invention is complete. A team of intelligent robots designed to fight evil and protect humanity. Metal men, sound off. Wednesday Comics Wednesday, returning to the 2009 anthology series. This time around, taking a look at Metal Men by Dan DiDio, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Kevin Nolan, Kenny Lopez on letters, and Trish Mulvihill on colors. We've seen Trish Mulvihill doing colors already for the Batman strip, and Kenny Lopez did the lettering on the um, uh, Superman strip. Uh, So, The Metal Men. uh, This was one I was eagerly anticipating because of the artwork by José Luis García López, who is, you know, just one of my favorite artists and just a master uh, craftsman of his work. And I have to say, he did not disappoint. I thoroughly enjoyed this series um so much to the point that I, I didn't even research any kind of like interviews for anything i just read it and i feel like the strip just speaks for him for itself i mean when you have someone like jose luis garcia lopez on the artwork um he just knows how to elevate the plot he just knows how to elevate storytelling and the plot is very simple it's just the metal men get caught up while they're at a bank in a in a um bank robbery that turns out to be a little bit more than that and then eventually they fight chemo chemo and and then that's it you know and but it's within the details that this story really really shines and um i expected the dialogue to be kind of fun and silly and a little bit throwback to you know, their are Silver Age appearances, and that's what you get. It is such a good series, such a good strip. And like I said, the artwork is phenomenal. So I have so many notes based on on the art. So let's just go through strip by strip. Strip one, field trip. Uh, they're, like I said, they're at a bank to study the American banking system. Um, the bank gets robbed, and... Uh, you know, they managed to overthrow the criminals, uh, but in this strip, there seems to be someone waiting around in a trench coat and a top hat that's just kind of watching everything. And, uh, you know, you, you probably would miss it unless you, you really look at the details, but it's there, which is fantastic. So, uh, the setup is right here in this first strip, and then you dig into the joy that is Garcia Lopez's art, and um, it, this is already up there, even from this very first strip, with the all reds doing the Metamorpho strip, because there's just so much to look at, you know. And when I was doing research for Paul Pope for the Strange Adventure strip, he was talking about the Sunday funny, Sunday funnies, and how the artwork was meant to be poured over, and you, you know, that it was highly detailed. Well, that's what this strip is doing. So, uh, right off the bat, you know, you get a, a series of headshots under the masthead. And those headshots line up perfectly with the second panel where you actually see the metal men in civilian clothing. So, from left to right, you got gold, iron, lead, tin, mercury, and platinum. And what I love about the their design is... Garcia Lopez has put them into kind of like 60s wear, right? With fun patterns, and it makes them look out of place, which is amazing. And there's such amazing storytelling. So Platinum, looking like Goldie Hawn, her hair is platinum, right? Platinum blonde. Uh, You have lead dressed up as someone who you might find in Haight-Ashbury in the 60s. Uh, Tin. I I swear Tin is dressed like Austin Powers, get it? Austin Powers. You know, he's got the ruffles, he's got the boots, he's got the blue coloring, and I I feel like that's such a character thing because if they were like, all right, let's dress like let's dress like they did in the 60s, Tin would be the one to to kind of look at a fictional character and mimic it instead of looking at like reality. I just think it works. It's such great storytelling. Um, you have Mercury looking like, well, it's not quite in the time period, but he looks kind of like Donald Sutherland out of the invasion of the body snatchers. He has a little peace sign around his neck. I can't quite figure out if gold in all of his yellow suit is that supposed to be like from Goldfinger. Iron looks almost like he could be Burt Reynolds. Uh I'm not quite sure about that costuming. But everybody in the bank is looking at them and there's such amazing storytelling going on in the background where you have, like, one bank worker in glasses and a bun in her hair, she's walking to the information desk, but she's looking at the metal men and smiling. And then when the crooks come in, she's crouching right where she would be if you, you know, if you progress the scene from one panel to the next, as sequential art is supposed to do, hence the name Sequential. Um, in the one panel early on, there's a young man on the phone. He's also looking at the metal man and then in the next panel he's walking behind them on the other side of the barrier and then when the cops or when the criminals come in he's crouching at the info desk right where he would have walked and walked to you know you can also follow this little boy in a superman shirt with his mother in panel 1 and then in panel 2 they go like around the other way of the of the information desk and a security guard pats his head then the criminals break in and then the boy is in the mother's arms reacting and they are in the exact position they would be if they were walking towards the front door so just all and that's not even you know there's more but all of that is just from strip number one like i wrote all of these notes and i was like oh my god right down to so when the criminals go into the vault um the metal men want to fight And gold disappears, and he goes into the vault. He becomes the gold bars that they try to steal. And you see his face on a gold bar, but you see his little hands down at the bottom because he's, you know, trying to make himself into a little bar, and it's so cute. Um, And it's such a great attention to detail. So, strip two, it's all elementary. Get it? Elementary? Elements, right? We're going to get some puns with all of these titles. It's the Metal Men versus the Crooks. That shadowy figure is still looking on. And they all crack little puns along the way while they're fighting. You know, things like, Looks like it's time for me to set a new gold standard. And this is one iron that presses more than clothes. You know, it's silly. It's fun and silly. Their personalities are very one-note. It's it's exactly what I would expect. And again, though, look at all the attention to detail. Look at Doc, Ma- Doc Magnus's face during all of this. Um, especially in the last panel where a security guard points a gun at the metal man, even though they stop the criminals. And take a look at Doc's face. Take a look at the surprise on Platinum's face. Lead kind of has like this dull look, and Tin is struggling in the background to keep his criminals contained. It's great. Strip number number three, metal urgency. Again, you know, little pun. Um, things go a little south as one of the criminals escapes from Tin and takes that young boy as a hostage. Uh, And then right away, Doc is like, all right, Metal Man, you know, protect the people, block the doors. And once again, like a play, all of the bystanders and all of the cast of characters from the bank are there. You can still see the little boy, his mother, the young man on the phone, the security guard, the lady with the glasses and a bun. I mean, they are all there. And again, the Shadow Man is just waiting and watching. Strip number four, The ore, The Merrier. Doc talks to the Gunman, and this is where we get a lot of the exposition of the Metal Men and their creation. And that gives Mercury and Iron a chance to disarm him and free the boy. And we finally discover that the shadowy man knows Doc Magnus. He is strapped with ex- explosive uh, explosives, and he's accusing Doc of destroying his life. Um, this page is great for facial expressions. Panel four: the way Iron's face is ready to take charge. The way Mercury seems to be like giving the criminal a side eye. Tin is looking nervous, and then the last panel: um, Garcia Lopez shows the reactions of all the metal men when they see that the Mystery Man has all these bombs around his chest. And just like George Perez, Garcia Lopez can put all of the cast of characters in like one panel or spread spread over two panels, and they, it never feels crowded. You can tell exactly who they are. You can see so much body language present in just one small panel. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. He is such a master. Um, ah, it's so good. And what's great about the strip is this is the fourth strip, and it feels like, okay, that was the first act, and now we move into the second act. So strip number five, He Who Smelt It, we learn that the mystery man is Dr. Bella Pretorius, who was Will's teacher. And they were working for a committee, but the committee decided to use... Magnus's idea to create robots over Bella's idea to experiment with toxic waste. And this is very much Didi- uh, DiDio messing around with the Metal Man origin, right? Like, we're not in the DC Universe, so he can change things up. Um, and I looked up the name Pretorius. There was a Dr. Septimus Pretorius who was in the Bride of Frankenstein film in 1935, and sources claim that he was originally supposed to be played by Bella Lugosi. So there you go. That's how you get Bella Pretorius. Um, I'm sure this might have something to do... Either, maybe, you know, maybe DiDio was a fan. Maybe there's something in Metal Men history that I'm just not familiar with. Um, but at least in... Because I know DiDio wrote another Metal Men miniseries, I think, and there were other Metal Men series at the time, miniseries at the time, so... I might be missing something, but still, it was kind of fun to see this. One panel worth noting in strip number five, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez gives us an outside shot of the bank when the police arrive, and it is just an amazing, busy street scene full of detail, and it expands the city, and you can see other things going on, and it's, it's just fantastic. It's just really great. Strip number six, Atomic Weighty Issues. Just when Bella is ready to push the trigger, it's revealed that Tin has masqueraded as the trigger device and he has disarmed the bombs. I was kind of hoping that we would see Tin do this in some of the previous strips. You know, that maybe Garcia Lopez was so good at his job. Um, We see him in strip four tiptoeing closer to the villain. That's about as much as we get. So the bomb doesn't go off, but instead sends off a homing signal, and here comes Chemo, Chemo, big green robot Chemo, uh, making his usual sound effects of "erp," and it totally makes sense, right? Because if this character of Bella was dealing with toxic waste, that's exact. I should have guessed that Chemo was going to be a part of this eventually, because it is the metal men. Um, So he shows up with all of his, you know green liquid inside of him. I love the panel of the metal men cheering Tin on, and they all do it in their, like, very individual ways. You know, you have Gold being the leader, Mercury trying to claim that he taught Tin everything, Platinum saying that he never looked more handsome. Even Doc has a smile on his face. Great, great panel. Strip number seven, a toxic situation. The Metalmen are shocked and unaware as to what chemo is, Again, proving that this is a story that doesn't necessarily connect to the larger DC universe. Um, The security guard fires and Kennel responds with a burp of corrosive acid. Tin saves the day by covering the uh, security guard, but then he's badly injured. And Doc tells everyone they got to stand down. And then you have another last panel showing all the members and giving their reactions. Also... I love that in that last panel, Bella is in the foreground. He's not necessarily contained on the same plane as the metal man, yet he still becomes kind of like the border of the panel. And Garcia Lopez has done this before, where he's sticking with a fairly you know structured um, panel layout. It doesn't quite go big and broad like like the strip like this format could allow. But what he's so great at is he might have a whole bunch of um, panels that have borders, but then he's very good about putting little headshots and little bust shots in between the panels in empty space to make it look designy, to just show what a brilliant craftsman he is. And that's what's going on here on that last um, panel. Strip number eight Perils from the Periodic Table. Things escalate as Iron forms a wrecking ball and tries to attack Kemo, but he puts a crack in him, leading Bella to exclaim that now Kemo is going to go nuclear and take the entire city with him. And that reminded me of how they used Kemo during Infinite Crisis when they dropped him over Bloodhaven, I think. And that wraps up uh, another four strips, and again, we now have the end of uh, the second act going into the start of the third act, which is, again, uh, a new, bigger threat. You know, how are the metal men going to save the day? Strip number nine, a toxic situation. Bella explains that with Kemo uh, having a crack in him, air is going to get in his in his body and going to create a nuclear br- a meltdown. Kemo is just sitting there on the street draining. Things to notice in this strip when Mercury threatens to have Bella swallow a part of him, which would be poisoning, it is in a scene or a panel where it's, they are all black. It's all silhouetted. silhouetted, And I think that's probably the only time the colorists use that effect. And I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. It kind of shows the gravity of the threat and the gravity of the situation, you know. And then the last panel, which is another group shot, um, I don't know why, but... Seeing Magnus's pipe in his jacket pocket just makes me happy. Strip 10, the metal of a man. Doc gets the metal man to take action, containing the crack around camo, even if it means they die. And I love how Doc gets emotional and he sort of stumbles over um, his command or question to Platinum, telling her to join in because he knows she might die. And she hugs him, and uh, it was so sad. I thought it was a really great moment. And then the last panel, the cops are telling people to get out of harm's way. And you see people running off panel. Um, but a few youths are trying to climb a lamp pole to get a better look. It's like, here we are at the end of this, end of this strip almost, and he is still filling backgrounds with tons of storytelling. Strip 11, A Valley to Forge the metalman managed to get Kemo into a concrete foundation of a construction site across the street from the bank. So when I told you to pay attention in strip 5 of that outside shot, that's exactly what Garcia Lopez was, was setting up, that they were eventually going to take this battle outside. When Iron comes to save them because he had been knocked out earlier, he has rust on his shoulder from where Kemo's acids touched him, and they all push Kemo into the foundation, and it explodes. And I'm like, okay, do they survive? Strip number 12, do you believe in minerals, as opposed to miracles? The metal men save the day, but at the cost of their lives, except for mercury. Um, the little boy that we've been seeing, he asks Doc if the robots can be fixed, with Doc saying, I can try, and that he'll make them better. And Mercury closes the strip out with, I'm not so sure about that, Doc. After all, how can you improve on perfection? And we see the faces of the fallen Metal men in the smoke, rising from the foundation. And it's not unheard of that they get destroyed and rebuilt again, but it was a nice touch and a nice ending to an otherwise... um, just to a really fun strip. I, I did. I just really enjoyed it. Um... It is bright, it is colorful, there's so much to look at. The cast of characters all get their their moment in the sun, including the bystanders. Um it's a simple plot, it makes sense, it has multiple bumps in action. Yeah, this it's good. It's really good. As I said, I didn't do any research because I was like writing all my notes and I'm going, that's it. That's all I need. So here is my ranking, my new ranking. We have Commandy and Strange Adventures, they those two are together. And now we have Metamorpho and Metal Men together. And the four of them are right up there up top. I, you know, I know it's probably a personal preference. Someone might read this strip and not come away with the joy that I did, but I'm I'm throwing it up there. Those those are my top 4. Commandy, Strange Adventures, Metamorpho, and Metal Men. Then you have Batman and Deadman tied, Supergirl, Green Lantern, and Superman tied, and down at the bottom, you have Teen Titans. Next up in Wednesday Comics and another three digests, we will go to the Wonder Woman strip by Ben Caldwell. Before we leave, here are your recommendations for the week of January 18th, starting with from Zombie Love Studios' Blackula, Return of the King graphic novel for $19.99 by the creative team of Philadelphia, Rodney Barnes and Jason Sean Alexander. To which right away I'm like, oh yeah, I got to take a look at that. Boom Studios, we have another Dune uh, maxi series, 12 issues. Dune House Harkonnen number one for $4.99. Brian Herbert, Kevin J. Anderson, Michael Shel- Shelfer. Raymond Swanland does your cover. This is the second official prequel to Dune in comic book form. So uh, go and check that out from Fair Square Comics. Noir is the new black presents Watson and Holmes, Volume One for twenty five dollars. Carl Baller's, Rick Leonardi, Larry Stroman, Paul Mendoza, Carrie Randolph on color or covers. Um, this is basically reinventing the classic detective team of Sherlock, uh, Sherlock, John Watson, and Sherlock Holmes, done in the noir is the new black style. From Marvel, we have the Wasp, one of four for three dollars and ninety nine cents by Al Ewing and Nia and Cassia Tom Riley. This is a follow up to the anniversary miniseries that featured Ant Man, which was so good. So I have to imagine, once again, Al Ewing, quickly becoming one of my favorite authors for Marvel, uh, is going to put a spin on everything with um, Janet Van Dyne and Nadia and all the wasps. So looking forward to that. And finally this week, Nightwing 100, Tom Taylor, Bruno Redondo. Uh, We also have Scott McDaniel on art. We have Rick Leonardi on art and others as well a slew of variant covers, Nightwing 100, such a great celebration uh, of that character, of that title, with some some really cool things that happen in it. Um, I am planning on doing a Tower episode soon. One of the segments in that episode will be a look at Nightwing 100. So, um, not quite certain when that's going to drop, but it is in my notes to do. So take a look at that or go subscribe to the Tower feed if you haven't already. All right, there you go. Those are your recommendations for January 18th. Well, we've had a few noteworthy news things, news items drop over the past couple of weeks, uh, circling around comics. Um, and I thought, you know, let's g- let's give a little nod here to some of this stuff because I think it's important for this uh, Thursday segment. So we're gonna have some news here, starting off with uh, Marvel's relationship with a bunch of Marvel Studios, I should say relationship with a bunch of VFX studios is not so hot. Um, There was an article that just came out recently, but there have been articles coming out all the way back to July of 2022, where a former VFX artist, uh, Drew Goville, was quoted as saying, Working on Marvel shows is what pushed me to leave the VFX industry. They are a horrible client and I've seen way too many colleagues break down after being overworked, while Marvel tightens the purse strings. And then another artist said, Marvel has probably the worst methodology of production and VFX management out there. They can never fix the look for the show before more than half the allocated time for the show is over. The artists working on Marvel shows are definitely not paid equivalent to the amount of work they put in, the charm of working on a Marvel movie is way overrated now, and I would rather be happy working on a TV series after decades of this. Not quite sure what he means by decades. Um, well, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, maybe it is decades, you know? Maybe, maybe we're trying to think too much about the current crop of Marvel movies, but, you know, they do go back uh, beyond 2008. Um, and remember, all this stuff is not coming out of just regular news sites. This is coming out of legit movie, trade, news websites, um, variety, and other places. So this is all legit stuff. And I fully understand that, you know, if if 10, 20 VFX artists give up their position, there are probably hundreds, maybe thousands more who will gladly give up some of their value to have the experience of working with Marvel because that's just the way it is, you know. Um, let's say we have a Georgia-based VFX worker opening up and accusing Marvel of having an alleged blacklist, noting that it's a common thing that comes up, and the worker revealed that the biggest way to get on the blacklist is to leave a show early for any reason. The blacklist is very talked about. I don't know anyone that's seen it for real, but it's a common thing that comes up whenever effects people talk together. If you do X, Y, or Z, Marvel will blacklist you, and you won't be working for them again. The biggest way to get on the blacklist is to leave the show early. Um, There are reports that the blacklist is a myth, but then we have two other VFX workers with experience working on MCU projects that revealed that the blacklist does exist (laughs) due to Marvel Studios president for physical and post-production visual effects and animation production, Victoria Alonzo. So um, there's a Vancouver-based tech who vowed never to work for Marvel again, explaining why Alonzo is known in the industry as a kingmaker. The main one that everyone's quite scared of is Victoria Alonzo. She is known in the industry as a kingmaker. If she likes you, you are going to work and move up in the industry. If you have pissed her off in any way, you're going to get frozen out. A senior animator in Marvel Studios Animation, which Alonzo heads, shared that the mini studio suffers under its impossible deadline structure by saying we're in-house, we're paid well. I do feel like we're padded by money, but it doesn't change the fact that they're asking for things that can't be done. And you know, I know there's talk of uh, Marvel creating their own VFX uh, company in-house, which is par for the course for Disney, right? Bring everything in on you know, under one roof. So, you know, this is just a small sampling of these articles, and when people say that they have problems with some of the special effects, like the way She-Hulk looks, or messy scenes in some of their movies, you know, I tend to believe them, because there is all this stuff going on in the background. In comic book news, Aftershock took quite a beating uh, this past couple weeks, so we had a bunch of creators calling them out for non-payment. This is dating back months, some of their non-payment, some of the non-payment going back a year or more. The company stated, The truth of the matter is that the company is addressing late payments as outstanding funds owed to the company come in. They are not. There are no non-payments which is kind of like company speak, if you ask me. Everyone who is owed money will be paid. We recognize our obligations and consider creator compensation our number one priority. We apologize for this situation and are making our best efforts to rectify it as quickly as possible. But then, just a week later, Aftershock filed for bankruptcy in the state of California. Apparently, that was a decision that was going on as early as September before any of this dropped. Um and then there were they were quoted again the intent of this decisive action among other considerations is to allow the company to maintain operations in the ordinary course including but not limited to paying employees and continuing existing benefit programs upholding and following through on commitments to contracted creators, as well as vendors who supply goods and services related to marketing, merchandising, and advertising. Aftershock will continue to operate, publish, and market comic books and graphic novels to supply to direct market retailers and mass accounts through its distributors in accordance with all federal, state, and local guidelines. There's been some really great reporting on this as well if you want to, you know, do some more um, research into that. Uh, Aftershock was always something... I don't know. I I don't know if I've ever even read anything from Aftershock. Um, but their output was quite extensive. So if they're not getting returns on their investment, um, I can see where creators would not be happy, especially freelance, right? As a freelancer myself for many, many years... This is something I always struggle with too, you know, where people want to pay you in split payments, you know, oh, we'll pay you at the start of the process and then we'll pay you at the end of the process three months later. And it's like, nah, that's not quite how it works. Um, All right, what else do we have here? Um, The Eisner judges were announced for 2023 and there is not a non-white person among them. So we have six judges, all of them from one demographic. Um, It says here, the judges are selected to represent all aspects of the comics industry, including creators, retailers, academic historians, journalists, and fans. But apparently, you know, not outside any kind of like major representation. So this is the Eisner saying, Oh, you know, we wanted to represent all aspects of the comics industry and all the aspects of the comics industry is white. So that was very disappointing because, you know, they're just not going to have they're not going to have the same eye on things as as they would if they would just, you know, mix things up a little bit. So that was very disappointing. Very disappointing. Not that I hold the Eisners too much value anymore. There's been enough shenanigans and there's been enough um just some crazy decisions that you can tell are more so that they diversify the awards, um, with but yet the judges are not diversified. So, there you go. Alright, let's end this segment with some better news. There is going to be a final paysetter magazine, Pacesetter magazine with by publisher Tony Lawrence uh, and editor Marcus Mebes. This is the George Perez fanzine, ...that has been going around. Uh, let's see. What did we get? The last issue, I think, was issue 16. So this might be issue 17. And they say here, Dear friends, we would like to invite you to be involved... ...in the final issue of Setter, ...the George Perez Magazine. This issue is a tribute to George... ...with pre- proceeds going to Hero Initiative... ...the cause that George was a great supporter of. You are invited to contribute art, photos... A written tribute or all of the above. What did George mean to you? How were you associated with him? What do you remember most about George? Please email your responses to Tony Lawrence at T at Yahoo.com and copy Marcus Meves at Barringer at Gmail.com. Deadline for submissions April 15th, 2023. Thank you for for your support and for being a part of something big. And the other reason I noticed this was because artist Luciano Vecchio was drawing on Instagram um, a group shot of the new Teen Titans. And I was like, oh, what's this for? And then he says, this is for the new Paysetter magazine. And I was like, wait, what? I thought we were done. So um, yeah, Paysetter, uh, let's see. They were being sold through Lulu.com. And I think Lulu got like a cease and desist letter from DC. Um, and um, Tony Lawrence was like, okay, well then that's it. You know, I pour my blood, sweat, and tears into this magazine. And if DC is going to be a jerk about it, I'm not going to do any more. But we're going to get one more, which is fantastic. So I will continue to update you on that. There you go. A little bit of news for this week. Wrap it up. Wrapping up this week's digest with a little bit of self-promotion here, as I want everyone to check out the new reboot of, or relaunch, of DC All-Stars, DC All-Stars podcast, which is now in Volume 2, just released, Episode 0, on January 17th, featuring Daryl Taylor, Hassan T., and myself. DC All-Stars was created for the Taylor Network of Podcasts, and just as the title implies, it is everything and anything to do with DC Comics. Um, The first volume reached about 76 episodes, I believe, and you can find a whole bunch of interviews, you can find a whole bunch of Superman discussion, um, DC movie and television discussion a look into a few series here and there, or some current series, some older series, stuff in the 90s. And uh, Daryl, you know, there was a slight little, you know, hiatus. And then Daryl and I were talking, and he wanted to get back into doing DC All-Stars, and we decided to do that. So this Zero episode was the second one recorded for the relaunch, but the first one to be released. In that episode, we talk about some high points of Volume 1, we talk about plans for Volume 2, and we go into our anticipations for Dawn of DC. The relaunch of the podcast comes at a perfect time because DC is also going through their own little relaunch here with Dawn of DC. Um, So we talk about that, and then we also go into the future of DC movies as well. I mentioned that this was the second episode we recorded. Daryl and I have already recorded episode one, which is a look at Wildstorm and the relaunch of Wildstorm and Wildcats and the Wildstorm 30th Anniversary One-Shot, so that'll be out, you know, within a week or so. So, yeah, DC All-Stars, you know, it's no uh, secret that I love DC, and I love that I'm able to participate on a show like that, because, you know, it gets out some of the stuff that I would probably do here on The Daily Rios, but sometimes I just don't have time, Um, and it's kind of nice to play in someone else's uh, sandbox. And then I think uh, another episode down the road that we're going to do is a Superman status quo kind of episode, also leading into Dawn of DC. And a lot of it was kicked off because both Daryl and I are reading a lot on the DC app, specifically the Ultra tier. So it's a way to stay current on DC books uh, and have uh, some fun, casual conversation. So give it a look, DC All-Stars. You can do a search or you can find it on, uh, you know, your podcast catchers. Um, it's, you know, like I said, I when I did DC Noise way back, which I think I did a segment on one of these digests a few weeks back, um, that was something I really, really liked doing. It was like my first foray into true solo podcasting, all about DC. I was coming up with... Um, themes that matched the episode number for the first three episodes. And, you know, I could do so much. I could have my own dedicated DC show, but, you know, then it would be one more thing distracting me from my long list of things that I want to do once I catch up, which I'm really close, right? This is the digest for January 21st, and then um, then there'll be the digest for January 28th. Um, but since this is episode 599, I'm probably going to do an episode 600, so it'll be a little bit out of order, but that's okay. Um, although I don't have an idea yet for episode 600. Maybe I will soon. So, um, yeah, you know, it's fun to be, to be in, uh, playing along with Daryl Taylor and Hassan and the Taylor Network and... Um, DC All-Stars was originally meant to be sort of like a rotating cast of hosts, which it was, uh, for Volume 1. So maybe we'll bring that back for Volume 2 as well. So, there it is. Go check that out. And that closes out this digest. You know where to reach me, peter at thedailyreos.com. Send me your best of, uh, topics. Send me your book club recommendations. Go visit the Daily Rios website or the Daily Rios Instagram Peter J. Rios is my Twitter. Review me on your favorite podcast catcher. Give me some stars, some likes, favorite, whatever. Um, You know, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 599 for Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Talk to you soon. No, 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 no. Yes, no, 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 no. Yes, no, no, yes, no, 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 no. Yes, no, 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 yes, no, 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 no.